You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner to English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 92, by Rudolf Steiner, The Listener's Notes of 16 Lectures, entitled The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends. In two parts, part one was Greek and Germanic Mythology, second part, which I'm finishing the book today with, is Richard Wagner in the Light of Spiritual Science. This is, uh, these are translated by Paul King. This is the last lecture, Lecture 16, which was a public lecture, given in Nuremberg on the 2nd of December 1907, entitled Richard Wagner and His Relation to Mysticism. Theosophy, or spiritual science, is not intended to be one-sided, satisfying only human inquisitiveness or a thirst for knowledge but is meant to be a spiritual stream called upon to have a profound influence on everything we call the civilization of the present and the near future. We will get a feeling that theosophy might be capable of such a calling when we see how the impulses alive in it are, fundamentally speaking, to be found not only in this theosophy, but are evident in our time as a more or less distinct presentiment in the most diverse fields. Today we will look at how, in one of the greatest artists of modern times, there lived a similar element to that which we find in what we call theosophy, spiritual science. One should not think that everything I shall have to say about the significant artist of modern times, Richard Wagner, lived in him in his clear rational consciousness. It would be an easy objection to say, quote, you tell us all sorts of things pertaining to Richard Wagner, but we can prove that he never thought in these terms about himself. Close quote. This is an objection that anyone who considers Richard Wagner, as we are doing today, can easily raise. It is not contended in any way that what will be said here lived in Wagner as distinct ideas. Whether one has the right to say such a thing is another question. It would take too much time to go in detail into how this right is derived. But a comparison, an image, can prove the justification for our considerations. Does a botanist not think about plants? Does he not look for the laws by which they grow and live? Does he not understand thereby the nature of the plant, or seek to understand it? And since the plant does not itself have these laws in its consciousness... Would someone be justified in denying the botanist the right to talk about the plant in this way? If we go more deeply into this image, we will see that what will be said today relates to the artist in the same way. It is not that we will simply repeat here the general notion that artists create unconsciously, but the laws by which, from a certain perspective of the world, we understand the artist need no more be expressly defined by the consciousness of the artist than do the laws of growth by the plant. Let this be said right at the start to forestall the kind of objection just mentioned. Another objection that can very easily arise at the present time is associated with the word mysticism. 
Recently, in a small circle of people, the word mysticism was mentioned, and a somewhat erudite gentleman said that Goethe was actually also a mystic, for he admitted that there is much in the world of human knowledge that remains dark and foggy. This showed that what the man understood by mysticism, when practiced by individuals, was all notions connected with what is foggy, unclear, dark. No genuine mystic ever understood mysticism to be something unclear, something we can only apprehend or have an inkling of in a general feeling way. Today we can hear it said in learned circles that what we know with clarity only reaches to a certain point. After that, we begin to sink into the secrets of nature with general feelings, and that's where mysticism begins. On the contrary, what the genuine mystic sees in mysticism is that which is clearest of all, which can shine into the depths of existence with concepts bright as the sun. And when people talk about the darkness of mysticism, of all sorts of vague notions, this only means that they have not made the effort to make clear for themselves what mysticism gives with clarity. In the first centuries of Christianity, this was called mathesis, not because it was supposed to be mathematics, but because the ideas and thoughts formed by mysticism were supposed to be as clearly transparent as the concepts of mathematics. We just have to have patience to find our way into what true mysticism is. Let the word mysticism be associated with the name of Richard Wagner only in this sense. Let us now characterize what the fundamental conviction is of every spiritual scientist. It is that behind our physical sense-perceptible world there is an invisible world and that the human being is capable of penetrating into this invisible world. What this premise encompasses includes mysticism. Did Wagner ever express such a conviction? Indeed, he did so clearly. And most importantly, he expressed it from his perspective as a musician, indicating that for him, music, art, was more than just an adjunct to existence, that for him it was the most important element of life. Where he talks of symphonic music, he says wonderful words about art. He says that all symphonic music appears as a revelation from another world, which elucidates for us the interconnections of existence in a completely different way from how logic is able to elucidate them, and that it is the most wonderful thing when we open ourselves to the convictions that throng to us in the elements of symphonic language. They then give us a certainty of feeling, which the intellect's conclusions about the world cannot oppose. We just need to realize that these are not words mentioned casually, but must be seen as an attempt to characterize something that comes from the most earnest depths of a great human understanding. Can we associate these words with the fundamental convictions of mysticism? Yes, indeed. If you research how mystics describe their process of coming to know something, you find, for example, the following statement, not in arbitrary terms, but as something you can find as a sort of technical expression of mystics. Mystics say, in ordinary human cognition, man relies on his intellect to understand the laws of nature 
and of the spiritual world. But there is a higher form of knowing, in which we do not link concept with concept in the manner of the intellect, but the ideas weave together like spiritual music. This is a different way of acquiring understanding. The true mystic knows the greater certainty of this method of knowing than is to be found in the judgments of the intellect in this area. And it is curious, but every individual who really knows will describe this way of acquiring knowledge by using the image, it is more than an image, of music. It is not just an image when, in the ancient Pythagorean school, they spoke of the music of the spheres. Shallow academic philosophy regards the music of the spheres as an image, as a comparison with something. But one who knows what it is really about also knows that the Pythagorean music of the spheres is a reality, and that there is a training of the mind and spirit whereby the sounds of this music can be heard. It has often been said that we are surrounded by worlds of a spiritual kind that initially we cannot see, just as a blind person is surrounded by a world of color which they don't see. When their eyes are operated on, brilliance and color and light, which were previously not available, now open up to them. Such an opening of the spiritual capacity of sight also exists. It is just a matter of opening the higher senses, then the higher worlds appear out of the darkness. And we call the closest world that surrounds us the light world, or astral world. And the next higher world is the actual spiritual world of the music of the spheres. This is a reality the human being can be born into through a kind of higher birth, just as the blind person can become sighted when operated on. Those who are initiated speak undisguisedly of this world. We only have to think of Goethe's words. Certainly many will regard what is about to be said as something fantastical. They will even regard it as unartistic to say such things, because with regard to an understanding of his work, they would rather leave the poet floating in vagueness. But a great poet like Goethe does not use empty phrases when he is trying to describe something specific, when he says, quote, The sun sounds forth in ancient wise. Close quote. This is either pointing to something profound, or it is just a phrase, since the physical sun doesn't sound. And we should not assume an empty phrase of this nature in a poet like Goethe, who worked from perception. As an initiate, Goethe knows that such a sounding world exists, a spiritually sounding world, and he holds to this image. And when, in part one, he has Faust lifted up, after his aberrations, into the spiritual world, again we find, quote, the new day is already born, sounding forth for spirit ears, close quote. Goethe keeps fully to this image when he wants to describe the spiritual world. For Richard Wagner, the sounds of external music were an expression, a revelation, of an inner music, of the world of spiritual sounding in the harmony pulsating through the world. He sensed this. He felt it. He said this himself more than once. Where he describes the individual instruments, he says, quote, the primal organs of creation and of nature are represented in the instruments, 
what they express can never be clearly defined and fixed, for they reflect the primal feelings themselves as they emerged from the chaos of the first creation, when perhaps human beings did not even yet exist who could receive them into their heart. Close quote. Our approach to these words should not be too intellectual. We must try to receive the full mood of them. Then we feel how Richard Wagner's whole soul was immersed in what was called true, genuine mysticism. This is how Wagner saw his whole artistic mission. He is not an artist who merely wants to give expression to whatever happens to be living in his soul. He tries to sense what is required from the place where he finds himself in the course of evolution. He looks back into primal distances of humanity's past, into the human past when what we call art did not yet exist. Here we touch on a profound point which occupied Wagner continuously in his sense of mission, the same point that Nietzsche contemplated so deeply and tried to describe in his work titled The Birth of Tragedy, Out of the Spirit of Music. We won't pursue what Nietzsche wrote, however, but we'll rather look to music, for it can tell us more than Nietzsche was able to bring to consciousness with regard to Richard Wagner. It takes us back to primal conditions of human development. What were the mysteries? All the peoples of antiquity, the Egyptians, the Greeks, and so on, had mystery centers, which could equally be called temples as schools. Everywhere the mysterium contained the foundation of a later culture, and also simultaneously religion, science, and art. Let us try in rough outline to imagine ourselves in the nature of such a mysterium. What did someone experience there, who, having passed certain tests, had been admitted to hear the mysteries? They experienced something which emerged later in the course of development in three separate branches, religion, art, and science, but which in the mysteries were still one in their common root. Imagine yourself as a beholder and listener in the mysterium. Let us take the case of how in the mysterium the riddle of the world was presented to the human individual. It was depicted how spiritual forces descended, how they live in the mineral, in the plant, how they become more perfect in the animal, and how they become self-conscious in man. The whole course of the cosmic spirit was depicted in such a way that eyes could see it all. At what eyes saw, ears heard, in color, in light, in tone, this was wisdom, knowledge. These people, unlike today, did not take in by means of abstract ideas what is contained in cosmic laws. It was depicted, they saw it happen. The depiction was also beautiful at the same time. Thus art arose. Truth was given in the form of art, and they were absorbed in art in such a way that the human heart came into a religious mood and sank down in adoration. This was present in the primal condition of every great culture. External history knows little about this and denies it, but no matter. In twenty years it will no longer deny such things. And just as these three were united in the original mysteries, so art, or the arts that later took separate paths, was a whole. Music and dramatic portrayal were united as one. And Wagner looked back to a primal time when the arts were united, 
presenting a totality. It was clear to him that because of the course human development had to take, the arts had had to go separate ways. But now in his time, so he believed, the epoch had come when a reuniting had to take place. He believed himself called upon in the sphere of his abilities to bring about a reunion of the separated streams, which he called a, quote, total work of art, close quote, Gesamt Kunstwerk. He felt that a true work of art should have the breath of a religious tinge in it. Thus for him a work of art was also religious service. We must think of all this in his feeling and try to sense it ourselves. If we follow his thought in detail, we will recognize it once more. Thus in his mind he saw a dramatic and musical work coming together out of these separate streams. He regarded Shakespeare and Beethoven as great artists. He saw in Shakespeare a dramatist who, with a wonderful inner coherence, brought human actions onto the stage in a way expressed in outer events. He saw in Beethoven an artist who was able to portray with the same wonderful inner coherence what took place internally in the breast, what did not pass over into external action, into gesture. And now he said to himself, This is something we can follow very precisely, but which has to remain unspoken. For between one action and another there is something in the human breast that serves as a mediator, but which cannot itself change into the form of dramatic art. And when inner human feeling is expressed in a symphony, it has to remain held in itself, as it were, when the musician is required to remain in tone. We see in Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 how what is living inwardly in the soul finally finds its way out and becomes language, that is, in the choral section of the last movement, wants to unite what is divided in art, but in human nature belongs together as one whole. This was Wagner's feeling about his mission. His idea of a total work of art arose from it, which was to place the human being within art as a whole being. He should be within it experiencing his inner nature, and he should have the possibility of letting what lives so inwardly emerge outwardly as action. What cannot be expressed externally as drama can be supplied by music. What music cannot express emerges as external drama. Richard Wagner represents a synthesis of Shakespeare and Beethoven. This is Wagner's fundamental idea, a fundamental idea that is drawn deeply from the innermost nature of the human being. This is what he felt his mission to be. But now art had been shown away into the innermost of human nature. Richard Wagner could not be an everyday dramatist. It had to be possible to portray the most profound things a human being can experience through the highest means of art, as once in the Mysterium. When we realize how in symphonic music Wagner sees the revelation of an unknown world, how he sees primal organs of creation in the various instruments, we soon begin to see how he feels it to be necessary to reveal more of the human being in his music dramas than we find here in the physical world. This, in the physical world, is only a part of human nature. Overarching this part is the higher man that lives in every person's inner being and which is far more than can be outwardly expressed. 
this higher man that surrounds the ordinary individual as though in encompassing glory, is more deeply connected with the wellsprings of life than can be clearly evident externally. But in wanting to make a connection with this higher human nature, Wagner cannot use ordinary everyday individuals. He must have recourse to those found in mythology. The figures in myth are depicted as growing beyond themselves. They are, and wish to be, far greater than a person of the physical plane could or would wish to be. Thus also connected with Wagner's mission is the fact that he goes beyond the everyday person and brings myth onto the stage. At the same time using myth, Wagner must allow, albeit not in an intellectual way, the deeper world laws, the laws and beings of the unknown world, to be illuminated by the dramatic action, by the musical element, and this he does. Naturally, we cannot go into all the details. We can only take single examples. It will be evident everywhere how, in his deepest being, Wagner is connected with what spiritual science has to tell us about the world. For example, what does mysticism have to tell us about the social coexistence of human beings? For external observation, people are juxtaposed. It sees individuals having effects on other individuals in the physical world when they talk to one another, becoming dependent on one another. But there are deeper connections in human nature. What lives as soul in one breast has a deep relationship with what lives as soul in another breast. And the laws that are evident on the surface are only the most insignificant ones. The deep network of laws that lies behind the soul goes from individual to individual. This is revealed by spiritual science. This is sensed by the artist. This is why he chooses subject matter by which he can show how there is a deeper law at work between person and person than can be seen by the external eye. Straight away, in one of his first works, Richard Wagner shows us this urge to present mysterious connections. For do we not feel something of what moves invisibly between one person and another when the Dutchman appears with Senta? Are we not reminded of the wonderful connections entitled Poor Henry, where the sacrifice of a pure maiden has a redemptive effect? We need to see such pictures as the expression of a deeper truth. This is something more true than the superficial truth of ordinary erudition. This is something real in the sacrifice a person makes for another, in this mystical bond, which is unintelligible to the superficial intellect. It comes to expression, for example, when we speak clearly of the all-soul. This contains what comes to expression in an image of deepest truth, when one person does something for another. I will now say something that spiritual science is able to demonstrate, so as to make this somewhat clearer for you. We know that the world evolves, and that during the course of evolution some beings are always discarded. There is a law taught by spiritual science which says that every evolution to a higher level is connected with a decline to a lower level. Later a balancing out takes place. For every saint a sinner must arise. It requires a necessary equilibrium. It sounds very strange, but it is true. 
It is like when a fluid is mixed of two elements. If we want the one to be clearer, the other one has to become murkier. This is how it is with ascent. Every rise is connected with a fall. This necessitates that the being that has risen must use his power to redeem the other, the lower being. If there were not this interaction between beings, there would be no development in the world. It brings evolution into flow. And when we see how one person sacrifices themselves for another, we are reminded of just such a mysterious bond that arose because one being evolved higher and the other fell lower. Such a thing can only be tentatively hinted at. Thus Richard Wagner is already in the midst of the mysterious bond that goes from soul to soul. When we look at his various works, we find that Wagner always drew his basic facts from mystical life. Let's look at his central work, his work on Siegfried, on the Nibelungs. In order to see how deeply they are drawn from world wisdom, we need to refer to something that theosophy makes fully clear, no matter how much it contradicts present-day science. Our far distant ancestors inhabited a region of land to the west of Europe, between Africa and America. Even science is gradually realizing that there was land there once, the land we call Atlantis. Our very ancient ancestors lived there, albeit in very different form. As mentioned, science today is beginning to talk about this ancient Atlantis. In the periodical titled Cosmos, published under the aegis of Hackel, there was an article on this subject. Certainly it only discusses what kind of animals and plants live there. Of the fact that man also lived there, there is no mention as yet. Things of which science now has an inkling are spoken about with clarity in spiritual science. There was a completely different atmosphere in Atlantis, completely different conditions. What we know today as the separation of sunshine and water in the air did not exist at that time. Over there in the west the air was permanently full of water vapor, of mist masses. The sun and moon could only be seen in a rainbow-like halo. The life of soul was also completely different. The way people lived was such that they had a far more inward connection with nature, with stone, plant, and animal. They were embedded in the masses of mist. True is the word, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, for what was preserved as an echo in the peoples descended from the Atlanteans was all the more the case in the Atlanteans themselves. They understood everything around them. The trickling of a spring was not inarticulate. It was the expression of the wisdom of nature. People heard wisdom coming from all things in their surroundings, for these surroundings brought it about that these ancient ancestors were dimly clairvoyant. They did not perceive what was spread out in space, but saw color phenomena. They had clairvoyant forces. There was wisdom weaving in the mists, and they perceived this wisdom with their dim forces. One can only give an indication of this. In the course of further development, the mists precipitated as water, and the air became clearer and clearer. Through this, man evolved to this present state of consciousness. He became closed off from external nature. He became a being enclosed in himself. When man is still living in union with nature, wisdom is uniform. He lives in a sphere of wisdom, 
and this is the foundation of a certain brotherliness. For everyone perceives the same wisdom, everyone lives in the soul of the other. With the descent of the mist masses, the human being entered into egotistical consciousness, into I consciousness, where each person feels their own center in themselves, where each person is confronted by the other and asserts their own domain. Brotherliness turns into the struggle for survival. Myths and legends are not what academic analyses maintain them to be. What are legends and myths? They are the remnants of the ancient, clairvoyant experiences of our ancestors. That is a fact. Assertions that myths signify a battle of one people against another are nonsense. Academics talk about poetic folk imagination. They just have to get to know a people and see whether they poetically change clouds into gods. They are just pulling the wool over people's eyes. It's fantasy, daydreaming. Even today you can still get a good idea of how legends arise. There are legends that are alive still today. For example, in various regions there is the legend of Lady Midday. The legend tells that when field laborers stay in the fields at midday, rather than having a break from field work and going home, Lady Midday will come to them and start posing questions. If they are unable to answer the questions by a certain time, she strangles them. Who would not see a dream picture here of what happens to someone who lies out in the heat of the sun? Dreaming is the last remnant of the consciousness of that time. Here we see how even today a legend arises from a dream. This is how all the Germanic myths and legends arose that have been preserved for us. These are primarily myths and legend that arose among the last stragglers from Atlantis. Thus the ancient Teutons remembered the time when their ancestors were over in the west. They did not come from the east. And how they migrated eastward at the time when the mists of the Atlantean mistlands condensed and caused the floods known as the Flood or Noah's Flood. How the air became clear and the clear day consciousness of the present emerged. The ancient Teuton looked back to the land of mists, to Niflheim, and said, We have advanced from Niflheim to the present world. But there are certain spiritual beings who have remained behind at the spiritual stage that was right at that time. They are those which, with all their understanding, have preserved the character, the nature of Niflheim, of the Nibelung's home, and intrude into our time when they become spirits, in quotes, because they no longer have a physical body. We have here a wonderful interweaving of strands. At no point should we approach this pedantically. We must take into account how imagination and clairvoyant ability, legend and fact, interweave. We must not brush the dew from them, for they have to have it. People remembered how the mists precipitated, and then had the idea that when the mists sank they formed the rivers of northern and central Europe. In the waters of the Rhine, people saw something like a remnant of the mists of old Atlantis flowing along. And how did things progress? People had perceived wisdom in the trickling of springs. This was a wisdom they had in common, a shared element that excluded egoism. Now a very ancient symbol for wisdom is gold. 
So what became of this gold? It became a possession of the human eye, capital. What had previously been a shared wisdom whispered to people by nature now became a wisdom issuing from human discernment from the I, capital, a wisdom which the individual as an independent being came up against. Now the human being fashioned a ring, in quotes, around himself. Through this ring the old brotherliness became embroiled in strife of people against each other. Wisdom as a shared element lived in the great legends of earlier times in the waters and the last remnant in the Rhine. That is where this wisdom had sunk. But people have evolved to the point of egotistical consciousness. Even the Nibelungs had to develop ego consciousness. They grabbed to themselves what had been shared and made from it the ring that encompassed them as the ring of egoism. Here we see expressed in somewhat sketchy terms how true facts flow into the world of imagination and how gold, the remnant of ancient wisdom, that had reigned in the mists, how the wisdom-filled eye fashions the ring about itself, which gives rise to the struggle for survival. This is the deeper basis of the myth of the Nibelung horde. This is something Wagner could give expression to in the great dramatic action and the tones of his music, which bring to expression an invisible world behind the visible. Thus he creatively transposed the Nibelung legend into a modern form, and gave us this whole developmental process in his Nibelung work. We feel how the new gods who reign over humankind have found their transition from the old gods. Let us think ourselves back to ancient Atlantis, clouds of mist where wisdom spoke everywhere, out of all things. Now powers had to arbitrate between people, no longer leading by means of common wisdom, but through covenants and commandments, and had even fixed the gods in covenants. This had its origin in a primordial, wisdom-filled consciousness. When the new god, Wotan, is at a crucial point, when Fafner is supposed to give back Freya, where Wotan himself is restricted by ego-wisdom, by the ring, the ancient sacred consciousness of humanity comes once more before him, the consciousness of the earth that enfolded humanity when it still lived on Atlantis. The consciousness of that time in which everything was embedded is portrayed in Erda. Her sleep is dreaming. Her dreaming is contemplation. Her contemplation is the sway of knowledge. This contains a cosmological truth. This truth is in everything, has created everything. It is alive in springs, rustles in leaves, wafts in the wind. There it finds the human eye, capital. There it was an all-encompassing consciousness from which all individual consciousness has arisen, the sway of knowledge. Old clairvoyance was a reflection of this reigning knowledge. Then the human being was not enclosed in his skin. Consciousness pervaded everything. One couldn't say then that ego-consciousness was here or there. It was embedded in everything. Wagner's intuition shows this wonderfully. Quote, you know what the deeps hide, what pervades hill and dale, air and water. Where beings are, there wafts your breath. Where brains brood, there your mind is. 
All things, men say, are known to you. Close quote. Everything is known to Erda through this consciousness. And so, step by step, we are able to see everywhere how what Wagner put intuitively into the Nibelung myth appears for us like an imprint of primordial world wisdom. Let us imagine ourselves, and it needs to be repeated that Wagner himself did not do this with conscious intellect, at the time of the transition from the old stage of development to the new. Over in Atlantis there was a brotherhood consciousness. Then came the transition to ego consciousness, the quality of independence in human nature. And let's imagine ourselves at the beginning of Teil Rheingold. Do we not hear the element of ego consciousness in the first notes, in the long chord in E-flat major? And do we not sense how this separate consciousness rises up out of a more general consciousness? Thus, through Wagner's own knowledge and motif by motif, we can find that a world hidden behind the world's phenomena reveals itself in the musical sound, and that in practice he uses the instruments as archetypal organs of nature. I would not wish to present Wagner to you as someone embodying a vague mysticism. His artistic creativity is immersed in the essence of a mystical clarity. And when we pass from this to another work, to Lohengrin title, how does what mysticism has to give play into the picture here? Lohengrin is the messenger of the Holy Grail, who comes from the place of initiates where high wisdom reigns. The Lohengrin legend has a connection with the legends we find everywhere that show us how initiates intervene in ordinary human nature. Everywhere at important moments in development we are made aware of legend which is deeper than history. Our attention is directed to how such initiate forces intervene in the course of history. Legend does not give us an external succession of events. The transition from general consciousness to individual consciousness was a significant time. The Lohengrin myth tries to describe this change. We see it is a time when a new spirit struggles free from the old. Two spirits of the time face one another. This is depicted in the conflict between the two women. Elsa, the feminine element, always represents the soul struggling toward what is highest. Banal interpretations cannot be applied to what Goethe wrote in his title Chorus Mysticus. Close quote. Quote, the eternal feminine draws us on. Close quote. This was written out of the most profound mysticism. The soul must be fructified by the great events through which new principles enter into development. What enters is portrayed in the initiates who come from places of significance. Here spiritual science speaks about advanced individuals. One is always asked, why don't they show themselves? If they revealed themselves, they would not be acknowledged. People would ask them about their ordinary bourgeois name and class. But for someone working out of the spiritual world, this is the most insignificant thing. An initiate whose task it is to make known the great mysteries is so high beyond things like birth, name, class, profession, that it makes no sense to ask him about them. Where questions like this are posed, the understanding for his profound mission is so remote that a separation has to take place. Quote, you should never ask me nor worry about knowing whence my journey brought me. 
nor what my name is or my standing. If asked about their name and background, any of those who do not live in just the ordinary world could reply with Lohengrin's words. This is one of the notes that is sounded in Lohengrin, where genuine, clear mysticism shines a light into the life of music and drama. There is in the world a profound secret, a mystery, possessed by humanity. It is depicted symbolically in a legend that has to be deeply understood. When the spirit, who at the beginning of our evolution, fell from the spirit's guiding humanity, when Lucifer fell, a stone fell from his crown, and from this stone was fashioned a chalice, the chalice used by Christ Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper, the chalice with which Joseph of Arimathea collected the blood at Golgotha and brought it to the West. After many journeyings, the chalice came into the hands of Titerel, who founded the Grail Castle. Titerel preserved it along with the sacred lance of love. The legend tells us that all who look into the chalice receive into themselves something of an eternal element. Let's understand the whole mystery of this legend a harmony with the progress of human development, as seen by those who know of the mystery of the Grail. They said, When human development began on earth, all love was connected with the blood. It was blood relationships that tied people together. We find small tribes in which marriage to close relatives was predominant. Only later did marriage to non-relatives emerge. The moment when marriage outside the tribe is permitted marks a significant transition in the life of every tribe. An awareness of this is preserved in myths and legends. So initially, love was tied to blood relationships. Then the circles in which one could marry grew wider and wider. This is the one stream in development, love that is bound up with equality and community of flesh and blood. Then another principle becomes decisive which implanted independence. In those ancient times preceding Christianity, so said the Grail Knights, there were these two streams, love tied to blood brotherhood and the freedom principle, that which prevails in the human being as an independent element, as a luciferic element, the power of Yahweh, whose name means I am that I am. In Christianity, a love was to be brought into the world that was independent of blood brotherhood. This is how the words of Christ are to be interpreted. Whoever does not leave father and mother cannot be my disciple. This means whoever is not able to replace love tied to flesh and blood with a general love of humanity, which moves from soul to soul, from individual to individual in general, and which must gradually develop, cannot be my disciple. Thus we see that the chalice falls from Lucifer's crown. It unites the Lucifer principle with the Christ principle. This knowledge brought to the Grail Knights the great energy that permeated them with ego life. We find this meaning in the legend of the Holy Grail. And the following was explained to the pupils of the Holy Grail. I will present, in the form of simple dialogue, what gradually became clear to the Grail pupils over long periods of practice. Many will say it is unbelievable, but it is the same with truth as with ambassadors of civilized nations to the courts of barbarians. As Voltaire said, they have to suffer unworthy treatment before they are accepted.
So the grail pupil was told the following, Look at the plant. Its flower cannot be compared with the human head. With its male and female organs of reproduction, the flower corresponds with the sexual aspect of the human being. The root corresponds to the human head. Darwin has already correctly indicated, in a comparison, that the root corresponds to the head in human beings. The human being is a reversed plant. He has made a complete turn. The plant stretches its calyx chastely toward the light, absorbing its rays, the holy lance of love receiving its pure kiss, under which the fruit forms. The turn is half accomplished in the animal. The plant that penetrates with its head into the soil, the animal with its horizontal spine, and the human being with its upright gait, his gaze directed upward, Steiner draws on the board. These three together make a cross. Just see, the pupil was told, how Plato was making known the truth when he said that the world's soul is spread out, is crucified on the body of the world. The world's soul, the soul that moves through plant, animal, and man, is found in the bodies that depict a cross. This is the original meaning of the cross. Everything else is just talk. What is the result of this reversal in the human being? When we consider the plant, we see that for the genuine mystic, the plant has the state of consciousness of a sleeping person. When he sleeps, a person is the same worth as a plant. The human being has gained his present-day consciousness by pervading his pure, chaste plant body with desire, with the body of passions. Through this he has, in a certain sense, advanced to self-awareness. But he has bought this at the price of permeating his pure plant substance with desires and urges. And now a future condition of the human being was painted for the pupil, a condition where the human being will have retained his bright consciousness, but, purified and cleansed, will have reverted once more to pure substance, like a plant. He will then have won back a pure, chaste nature. The organ of reproduction will be transformed. When pictured from the viewpoint of the Grail Knights, that the human being of the future will have organs that serve reproduction in such a way that they will not be permeated by desire, but will be pure and chaste, like a flower calyx turning to the lance of love, to the sun's ray. Thus the ideal of the grail will be realized, when man brings forth his own kind in chaste purity like the plants, when he generates his own likeness in the pure higher calyx, when the human being becomes a creator in spirit. This real ideal was called the grail, the transformed human reproductive organs that bring forth a human being as purely and chastely as the larynx today brings forth the word by activating vibrations in the air. We will now try to show how this great ideal was living in Wagner's mind. On Good Friday, in 1857, he was standing on the balcony of Frau Wesendonck's garden house, looking at the shoots of the first plants. He made a note of this memorable moment. In the sprouting forth of the young plants, he felt the whole mystery of the Holy Grail, the coming to birth of everything connected with the idea of the Holy Grail. He felt this in connection with Good Friday. A wonderful feeling came over him, and the first thought of his Parsifal shot into his mind. A great deal more came to him in the time that followed, but the feeling remained. 
he developed his figure of Parsifal from it, the figure in whom feeling is raised to knowledge, where one becomes, quote, knowing through compassion, close quote. And we see in the Amphortas mystery the whole phase in which human nature becomes wounded by the impure lance. We see how the mystical mystery of the Holy Grail is illumined here. This is not something that may be touched on with rough hands. One has to follow the whole feeling and hold in mind the ideas in their totality. Everywhere we look we see how, although Wagner did perhaps not think mystically, as an artist and human being he presented everything he did in a mystical light. That is the crux of the matter. Spiritual science is not supposed to give us theory but something that becomes immediate life. This too is how Wagner clearly felt his mission, so clearly, so mystically, that he could say, the kind of art that lives as an ideal in me must once again become divine service. He had sensed the flowing together once more of the three streams and wanted to be an emissary of their joint activity himself. From his mystical knowledge there follows what has lived as a mystical and clear feeling in all the great masters and what we feel when we make a connection between the great masters and mysticism. Goethe sensed it. The human being then becomes healthy again, feels something of that by which he overcomes himself when he experiences what is in titled Die Geheimnisse, quote, the human being who overcomes himself frees himself from the power that binds all beings, close quote. When this mood of becoming free of the I, capital, of living into the mysteries of the cosmos, pulsates through all our energies, then is the human being a mystic in all areas. Whether externally in religion or science or art, he wrestles to bring himself into a unity in the sense of a unified human nature. This is what Goethe wanted to articulate as the secret of every whole human being when he summarized the secret of his own soul in the words, quote, One who has science and art also has religion. If he has neither of these, let him have religion. Close quote. That is the end of the last lecture of this book, Lecture 16 uh, of Collected Works, Volume 92, entitled The Occult Truths of Myths and Legends, Greek and Germanic Mythology, Richard Wagner in the Light of Spiritual Science, translated by Paul King.